WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. The past two months, we've been exploring the subject of women's sexuality. My guest tonight is Julia Chaffetz. We're going to be talking about sexual assault. Julia is the Education Program Manager at Sexual Assault Service, Response Services of Southern Maine. She is also a social worker, and she's been working in the field of sexual assault for the past 10 years. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I want to start out by asking you, um, what inspired you to get involved in the field of sexual assault? What, how did you decide this was your life's work? Well, it, it really started when I was in college. I was actually at my first um, ever Take Back the Night March and Rally. And it was, um, I don't know, I actually can't remember how I got there. I must have seen a sign around campus or something, and somehow I followed the freshman pack to <laughs> to Take Back the Night. And um, the way that they did it at, at my school, there was um, it was just mostly speaking out. It was mostly people survivors of sexual assault speaking out about their own experiences. So I listened for, you know, three hours straight, I think, mm. to my classmates coming into the center of the circle and sharing their stories. And um, How brave. Yeah. So it takes so much courage to, to go get out there and because it's so hard for people to speak out about this kind of stuff because there's mm. so much shame and so much blaming of the victims and uh, just a lot of covering up of this issue in general. And so it was amazing to watch just, I, you know, I think I, I think I originally went thinking it would be a really quick thing and I'd hear one or two people's stories and then we'd go home. And it would be these horrific stories of, you know, the stereotype, like violent rape that takes place, you know, a stranger out of the bushes drags someone somewhere and does something unspeakable, unmentionable or unthinkable. Mm -hmm. Um, and that wasn't what I heard. I, what I heard was my classmates saying that they had been raped at frat parties and talking about the guy that they had to see on campus every day oh. or hearing them talk about something that had happened in their family, their father or their stepfather or their brother who had, who had sexually assaulted them so throughout their childhood. So people that they knew, not yeah. strangers, in fact, which, of course, I understand is far more case. It is far more the case. It, in fact, it's a, almost all of the time. It's a majority of the time. Um, the statistic is actually that for um, children under the age of 18, it's 93% of the time they know the perpetrator. And that goes up um, a bit for adults, but um, it's still always vast majority. So I can imagine from a psychological standpoint, the consequences of that are even more complicated. It's someone that is supposed to be caring. It's someone that they, at some level, trusted. So there's an additional layer of betrayal. It's not just some stranger who was always a creep and violent. It was someone that, at some level, they were open to. Yes. And and, mm -hmm. and really, the way, generally, that perpetrators gain access to victims is that they gain their trust in one way or another. Either they have it already because they're someone that is inherently trust, trusted in their environment, like a family member or um, a person of authority, um, mm -hmm. or they gain their trust, you know, by, by saying the quote unquote, the right things or, um, and, and what perpetrators would be, what really, would be the right things that you would say, I mean, would that mean like, I love you, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've heard people talk about per perpetrators and say, you know, people who have studied the, yeah. the behaviors of perpetrators and say, they they specialize in knowing exactly what that person needs to hear 
and figuring that out. And that's the game they play. That's so creepy. Yeah. So they're skilled at what they're doing, in other words. Yes, yes. Skilled and intentional uh-huh. for the most part. Yeah, that makes it somehow even more disturbing. Yeah. Uh-huh. So there you are. You're a college freshman. You go having no idea how powerful the impact this is going to have on your life. Yeah. And you, it was not what you expected. It was far more personal. It sure was, yeah. Yeah. And as you stood there, um, did you have, how, what impact did it have on you? I mean, did you stand there just feeling the intensity of it in your own body kind of thing? What Absolutely. Was it was one of those moments where you have that, I don't know if it's an out-of-body experience or a super in-body experience. I'm not uh-huh. sure which way to describe it, but where you're just like, time has stood still and you are there and something is changing. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that um, at that moment. I really, I felt... Um, I felt like this was really important, and mm-hmm. I felt like the stories that I was hearing, even though they weren't my personal stories that, that the other people were telling in the middle of the circle, were also my story, um, because they all had elements of things that I recognized in my own life and in, and in my friends' lives. Yes. And it just, um, yeah, I couldn't go back after that. Mm-hmm. So I actually really immediately... Um, got involved with a local rape crisis center and I, and I started volunteering for their hotline. Mm-hmm. I understand that's part of what SARS, your agency, has a hotline. It is. We have a 24-hour crisis and support line. Uh-huh. And how many calls do you get a year or a month? Is it? We get, um, I think we average about 10 a week. And uh-huh. um, I think about, we average about two hospital calls a week. And are those mostly from people who have been acutely just assaulted or from people who are struggling with the fallout long term? It's a wide, it's quite a wide range that we get. Um, sometimes it's people who have just been sexually assaulted and they want to talk to us about what their options are, um, figure out what, what happens next, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can help them think through. We never tell people what to do because we believe that we work from an empowerment philosophy, which we believe that everybody has the ability to, to heal themselves and to know what's right for them. Right. And if you've been assaulted, you've been temporarily out of control of Absolutely, your body. So you yeah. want people to be in control of their choices. Exactly. And that's what the healing is all about. Yeah. So um, that's that's why we do that. So if they've just been sexually assaulted, we can talk to them about what their options are, whether they're going to go to the hospital, whether they're going to make a police report, whether, I mean, or uh, whether they, those aren't even on their radar. One of the options for someone in that situation is that you would accompany them. We do. Yep. Um, yeah. So we go. So that's what I, when I say we get about two hospital calls a week, we go to the hospital about twice a week on average with people who have been sexually assaulted. And in that role, is it primarily um, emotional support or is it also, I mean, are you advocating for the woman to get a certain kind of treatment or not be treated in certain other ways? Are you? Yeah, both. It's both. We're there for emotional support. We're there, you know, to hold hand. We hold hands. We, yeah. um, you know, we, we let them know what's coming next. And so keep them sort of informed about what's going on. Uh-huh. And then also if there's um, something that shouldn't be happening or something that happens that that is upsetting for them or victim, bl- victim blaming st- statements by anybody at the hospital or anything like that, then we'll, we'll help either address that with the person who makes the statement or, or talk to the, help the, the person think about what happened and yeah, I want to talk more about victim blaming. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. My guest is Julia Chaffetz of Sexual Assault Response Services. And victim blaming, in some ways, it's all, if it's going to come around anything, it is, seems to be most around 
sexual assault. And how, how do you understand that? Why is it that the, the sort of stereotypical woman who went jogging in Central Park after dark, why is it her fault the way people talk about it? How do you, how do you think about that? I think there's a few, there's a lot of different elements, and it's pretty complicated. But what it comes down to, I think, is on the one hand, a desire to feel safe. And if we can blame her for what happened to her, then if it's her fault, then it couldn't happen to me. Do you see what uh, I'm saying? Because so I if, wouldn't make that mistake. Because I wouldn't make theory. that mistake. I wouldn't do what she did. Uh-huh. And um, so a lot of times the stereotype that it's, you know, a girl who wears revealing clothing yeah. or who who drinks too much or who flirts too much or whatever it is. Yes. Um, or who went or who went running at the wrong time or who, you know, did whatever made whatever choice she made, I wouldn't make that so I wouldn't be vulnerable. Yes. Or my my sister or my daughter or my mother wouldn't make those decisions and wouldn't be like that, wouldn't be that girl. So it's a way that we kind of other the person. We make yes. them distant from us and very different from us so yeah. that I don't have to really feel vulnerable too. And I think there's more, there's, that's one piece of it. I think another piece of it, and we talk about a lot of this stuff we talk about in, in classrooms. I, as education program manager, we, um, I manage the education program, obviously. And um, we go to um, schools, high schools throughout York and Cumberland counties. And so we, this is something very much we talk about in the high school classrooms that on the one hand, there's the blaming the victim and the, the safety that comes from that and the feeling of safety. Or the illusion myself. of safety. The illusion, perhaps. exactly. That's a good way to put it. But on the other hand, I think it's also um, taking some of the responsibility off of the perpetrator. And I think that that's another piece of why we do that. Because and why would we want to do that? Well, um, if we think about what that statistic we talked about at the beginning, that most of the time it's somebody that we know, then we don't want to think that the person that we know, that that could be a rapist. Uh, so that's part of it. So that's so threatening so, yeah. that we try to uh, just spell that out a little bit more. So the thought that someone who I know might do that to me. It's so horrifying. I try to let him off the hook a little bit. Yeah, or because the, I have a loyalty to the people in my life. Is I that think the that idea? could be part of it, or or that it's someone that I know would do that to me, or would do that to anybody else. You know, like that that sort of that that public figure or that person that I know that I trust that I think is a good guy. Mm-hmm. That and and the reason I say guy is because the majority of perpetrators of sexual assault are, are male, um, which isn't to the say vast the majority. Majority, the vast majority. Vast majority. It's actually yeah. the statistic I have is that it's ninety seven percent, and not only that, it's uh, straight straight men, not just men. Yeah. Um, so, which isn't to say that most men are are rapists because that would be horrible. <laughs> um, right. But and I'm always want to be really clear about that that it's a small part of small percentage of the population that rapes. Right. But a of very that small population. Minority. Almost all of them are men, are straight men, yeah. um, and so knowing that and knowing and knowing that it's usually somebody that the victim knows, it's also somebody that you know could be sitting next to you in class or could be teaching the class or could mm-hmm. be a friend or could you know a partner and all. We don't want to think that those guys are capable, right? I think we probably have a fantasy that a rapist would somehow be so different that we'd be able to spot them. Yes. That they would look evil or or somehow look bad, like they'd have a big R on their forehead or yeah. something, that you would know this person was so different and you'd be able to tell and not be vulnerable yourself. Yes. Right. Whereas, of course, the line between good and evil runs through all of us, not between 
people. And that's also such a hard thing to come to terms with. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that we do, I mean, we do all grow up in a culture that, I mean, on the, on the wider level, our culture does give messages about sex that can lead to rape and about men and about women and what they... Tell me more about that. Well, um, if you think about what we see, the way that we see sex depicted on TV or on in movies, um, there's a lot of times there's a power dynamic involved. And, you know, when you ask, we go to high school, we go to high school and also middle school classrooms. And if you ask kids who is supposed to have power in a relationship, a man or a woman, it's, um, it's pretty clear when you talk to them a bit that they all know that it's supposed to be a man. That I'm, You know, we look at phrases like, who wears the pants in that family? Or right. um, even that's supposed to be, it's very it's disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, so and kids will all, I mean, so the vast majority of kids will say it's supposed to be the man who has the power. Yeah, well, it's actually interesting. In, in um, middle school classrooms, we'll, well, we we do this, we talk about gender stereotypes and yeah. um, and how they lead to sexual harassment. And we'll go through a whole bunch of different categories like sports and looks and and what what a man is supposed to be like and what a woman is supposed to be like and when we get to the the who's supposed to have well first of all it's the that men are supposed to be in dating relationships only with women and that women are only supposed to be in dating relationships with men so we talk about that as a stereotype and then we say um to we say we ask so in these relationships who's supposed to have more power the man or the woman and a lot of the, a lot of times, sometimes it's, the kids will right away say it's the man, and we know this, and we know this because, you know, he is the money, or he's the one who's supposed to have a job, or he's the one who's supposed to drive when they go on a date. And sometimes they'll point that out initially. What we also sometimes get is kids say, oh, the women are supposed to be in charge because they're always on TV and sitcoms are always bossing the guy uh-huh. around. Uh-huh. And so we say, okay, that's interesting. So when the woman is bossing the guy around, how did they portray the guy? Is the guy supposed to be, like, is he cool? If the woman is bossing him around, oh, no, not at all. Right. He's lame. He's portrayed as kind of lame or kind of, you know, a pushover or and you know, or they'll say he's whipped. Um, right. So as I'm listening to you, I can't help thinking, we haven't come very far. <laughs> I guess I had a fantasy that, you know, for kids that they really would have seen much more examples now of And they equality. do. And I will say that's the other thing is that they do. And the hope there is that a lot of times in those same classrooms, kids will say, well, that's what's on TV, but that's not what I see in my house. And or, do you hear that? Mm-hmm, yeah, we do. And and that's really important. Yeah. Um, because I, I mean, and the fact that we're even having this conversation that we, I mean, and we are in, our education programs are in schools all over York and Cumberland County. What and grade do they start? Kindergarten. Kindergarten. Yeah. Wow. It's really cool. We and do the kids, no doubt, they're astute observers. They're noticing yes. how the world works. Yes. And so in kindergarten, I don't want to make, make it clear what we do so that it's not scary. Uh, We're not yeah. talking to kids about um, sex or anything in kindergarten. But we, what we are talking about, we have, have puppets, and we are talking about different kinds of touches and the kinds of touches that... Safety. Yeah. It's just, and we, we, we frame it from a safety perspective. Yeah. So I want to come back to your earlier point about how... Um, we talk to people about sexuality in a way that can foster an attitude that rape is natural or sort of that is continuous with that. And say more about how you see. So one of the things you're saying about that is that there's this cultural assumption that a power imbalance is part of straight sexual relationships. Right. Yeah. And, and rape, I mean, really, I should also clarify and say that rape is always 
there has to be an imbalance of power in, in order for rape to occur. Mm-hmm. One person has to have more power than the other person, and then they have to choose to abuse that power and hurt the other person with it. Yes. So that's why that power, having that kind of natural power dynamic um, that is expected. Yes. Um, I should say actually unnatural power dyna- dyna- dynamic because I don't think it's natural, but that it's, yeah. that it's expected of us and that's how we are supposed to be in relationships um, that, um, that, that, that that can lead to, I mean, that leads to an power imbalance and right there one person doesn't have as much say. But another Another reason I think we say that is that if you think about the stereotypes that guys are supposed to want sex all the time, Mm -hmm. I mean, think about how many times you see that stereotype on TV or in movies. It's like everywhere. That they are constantly interested and that their sexuality uh, could be... Uh, wild, out of control. Yep. And on and, then, and on the other side of it, that women are supposed to not want sex. And they're mm-hmm. supposed to, they're the, the gatekeepers, the protectors. And so if she's acting like she doesn't want it, that could, that doesn't always, I mean, that the whole yes, maybe no means yes thing. Yes, right. Um, right, that girls are being socialized to say no when they really mean yes because no is the only way to look appropriate. Right. Right, and, so girls are given messages too that put them in vulnerable situations yeah Yeah. and so and so if it's if if girls are not supposed to want sex then guys are always supposed to want to take it from them then you can see how a guy or you know you could see how a guy might be able to justify to himself well this is what i'm supposed to do right it's it's really creepy to see how insidious and how it's in all layers of our culture and kids are aware of it so early. We're going to take a musical break in one moment with a song that seems oh so fitting for Take Back the Night. I go out walking after midnight out in the WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. I'm talking to Julia Chaffetz of Sexual Assault Response Services. She's here in the studio with me tonight as part of our promotion of the Take Back the Night March, which is coming up in two days, Friday, April 24th. Julia will tell you more about that in a few minutes. In the meantime, I want to talk about how the culture of the fear about sexual assault affects all of us. So, you know, your organization helps women who have been directly impacted. But for those of us who haven't experienced it ourselves, the fear of it is so pervasive. And I wondered if you could comment on how it affects all of our lives as women. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first of all, those of us who haven't been directly affected, um, I'd say most people I've talked to, but that by the time they're a young adult, even if they haven't experienced it themselves, um, they are have dealt with it because their friends have dealt with it or their loved ones. And so, um, everybody knows somebody, everybody knows somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one direct, very direct way that even if it hasn't, even if we, you know, somebody themselves is not a survivor of sexual violence, they've, it's been affected, it's affected them. Mm -hmm. It's affected everybody, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, in, in the sort of more, 
I don't know if you would call it indirect because it's a very real present thing in, in women's daily lives. Um, I've, there's this um, really great educational exercise I've seen um, where you ask the men in the room, um, so what do you do every day to, pr- to protect yourself from sexual assault? And the men usually kind of look around at each other and kind of shrug and say they don't really think about it. Sometimes there'll be one or two suggestions of what they do. Um, and then, then they ask the women in the room, so what do you do on a daily basis to protect yourself from sexual assault? And at first, the few, first few things that come out are, you know, I don't walk alone at night and I don't go running at night. And I, if I do, I hold my keys like a weapon and, you know, and then you start scratching below the surface and you can fill up like a whole piece of newsprint. Right. Where you park the car. Yeah. What time you leave work. <clears throat> whether you use the stairs or the elevator. Yeah. Whether you wait and finish the project or you leave when everyone else is leaving. Yeah. Whether you go to your car from the grocery store or not. Yeah, whether you go to the grocery store at 9 o'clock at night when you're on your way home from a late evening or no. Whether you have time to exercise in the evening because it's already dark. Yeah. What you wear. Yes, what you wear is, that's that's one that... What kind of shoes you wear because you wouldn't be able to run. Yeah. And, and people really do think about this. And I, I've, heard, I've heard guys I know say that they, they didn't really think about it until they, they had this conversation with their, their partners mm-hmm. and didn't realize how many things there. I mean, when the two of them would go out together, um, didn't realize all the things that she was thinking about that he didn't even have to, didn't even, didn't even cross his radar. Right. How much of our energy goes into fear and trying to always be on guard? Yeah. Yeah, and it's really, it's, and and some of it is things that we consciously think about because we have to, and some of it are things that you don't even realize that that's why you're doing it anymore. Mm -hmm. Because it's become such a given. Yeah. You know, I think about the impact on our relationships. If you're a straight woman involved with a man, you know, when we're saying that our, our MO becomes to walk around with some level of fear and guardedness. And how does that affect our intimate relationships? How does that affect women's sexuality in straight relationships with loving partners where you've just been schooled to be afraid, you've been schooled to be on guard, you've been schooled that the man's sexuality, if he gets too into it, he's going to lose control. It has a very powerful impact on your intimate life. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, think about the effects that it has on on women and also the effects that it has on men. If men are taught that they have to be afraid of their own sexuality as well, or they may hurt their partner. Yeah, say more or, about that. Well, it's, it's something, it was sort of, that was an epiphany I had while you were talking, but yeah. <laughs> I've never, I hadn't really thought about that before. But, you know, if you think about that, um, I think the message, I mean, I think that these messages are just as damaging to men as they are to women. Yes. Um, in different ways, but certainly... There. How confusing for a young boy kind of going into puberty to who knows himself to be a loving person, very can't, sensitive and caring, to be thinking he's supposed to fit into this uncaring, you know, stereotype that's really macho and that's right. capable of violence. Right. Um, it must be so confusing and disturbing. Or that isn't supposed to ask what the other, what their sexual partner is feeling or thinking or wanting. Or you notice. Know? Yeah, or notice, right, exactly. Or care. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I truly believe that majority of people do notice and do care right. and do want to know. Yes. And we're not given, I don't think we're given the tools. I don't think we're given the tools or the, or the, 
the expectation of respect that 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 will do that. And so as a result, I I mean, I think I think it really hurts all of our sexuality. Mm-hmm. I'm really whether you're it doesn't I mean, it doesn't matter who you're with. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it, it's something that's a male it, or female. Yeah. I want to talk now about prevention. Um, you know, I get emails, there's these sort of circulating emails at times that say, never get into your car if it's beside a van because people will grab you into a van, this, which again feeds this kind of stranger violence yes. idea. Um, what what do we know about what is effective in prevention? Well, um, there's, there's two, sort of two levels of it. On the one hand, there's risk reduction, which is the don't get into your car if it's next to a van kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you're you're doing things to avoid putting your being in a vulnerable a vulnerable position. Right. And so that can mean traveling in groups when you're going out to a bar if if you're if you're a girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um it, which can be a good idea for a whole bunch of reasons. Um or um you know or not being careful of your drink and making sure that nobody's put anything in your drink or um or not getting too drunk which I I I hesitate to even say that because I think anybody should be able to get as drunk as they want to, and that's a whole other issue. But I think that you know, for no, many reasons, that right? For not many always reasons, be the wise not always the, exactly. Right. Um, but you know what I say in a in high school classrooms is somebody could be drunk, naked, and walking down a dark alley by themselves. No one, should none touch of them. which I recommend, but or advocate, but. Um, that the person who finds that person has a choice as to whether they're going to hurt them or they're going to help them. And so the risk reduction piece can be a little bit of a slippery slope because it can get into victim blaming. Right, because these all th- are things that the potential victim has to do. Right. What about prevention on a society level or with men? Yeah, and there's there's a lot that is going on with that. I mean, one of it we uh, is our, our school-based education programs, and there are programs like that throughout the state and throughout the country that are really working on talking to Young people, I think, particularly, but really should be happening on a community level, um, talking about what is consent and what does it look like and that consent to sex, that every sexual act needs to be consented to every single time Mm -hmm. and that consent is active. So it's not being silent. It's not um, it's not just sitting there. Mm -hmm. Um, Consent is, you know, if someone kisses you, then consent is kissing them back. Not just sitting there is not consent. Not stopping them is not consent. Right. And so really, I mean, making that clear to people because I don't. And severe levels of intoxication is are not, are consent. not consent. And in fact, not capable of consent. Exactly. And in fact, there's a there's a recent media example of that in the movie Observe and Report. There's a scene where the main character has sex with a woman who's unconscious and she's so drunk that she and, and I think on drugs as well that she's unconscious. And it's a joke. So it makes you wonder, I mean, it makes you realize why this happens. So the media has a role. So another aspect of prevention would be asking the media to be more responsible about the glorification. Yes. Or finding humor in these kinds of horrible images. Yes, and one way to do that could be to boycott, observe, and report, um, or really starting. And that's the other thing. I mean, actually, the theme for our Take Back the Night event this year is stand up, step in, speak out. And it's really, that's just really about the fact that we all have a role in ending sexual violence. And it can be little things. It can be little things like choosing not to go see a movie that that glorifies rape. It can or or laughs at it. Mm-hmm. It can be having conversations with the people that you care about, or it can be um, if somebody says a sexist joke. It can be saying like that's not cool. I don't think that's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there there are a whole bunch of initiatives out there that are really talking about um, the little ways that we can do it's that. It's like impacting the culture as a whole, where yes. the tolerance for this becomes less and less. Yes, absolutely. And and this the numbers have shown that it works. It's um, mm-hmm. over the last ten years when rape crisis programs have done an increase, like have, there's been an increase in funding for prevention education, the, the incidence and the prevalence of rape has gone down. And well, so it's, which, great to hear. it's good news. <laughs> prevention is effective. It is. One last question before we have to end tonight. If, if someone does love someone who has been sexually assaulted, what are the important things to know about how you can support a woman who's been through that? Do you bring it up? Do you not bring it up? Um, what's the best way to help someone? I think the best thing that you can do is it's everybody has their own healing process. And and one thing and the one of the really I think important things for a loved one to do is to recognize that that that's the case and that that's okay. And that means that they may not be crying all the time like you expect them to or they may be crying all the time when you've expected them to stop. Or you know and so understanding that and giving them that space and to co- sort of go through their process. Um another thing can be um uh, it's really important for for people to know that you think it's their not their fault, and uh, you can do that in many ways. You can do that by actually actively saying it and reminding them, mm-hmm. because that's really important for like. I mean, sometimes for a long time, people need to hear that. Right. So much of the shame is based on feeling. Yeah, that. and that can also be through saying things like choosing not to say things like well, if only you hadn't gone there. Oh, if only you right. hadn't worn that shirt, it wouldn't have happened. And, you know, people, well-intentioned loved ones say things like that all the time. Um, or, oh, if you hadn't been so drunk. Right. So, and they mean well, but it, that to, to the victim, that sounds like, oh, it's your fault. That makes so much sense. Yeah. We are going to have to wrap up. So, Julia, I want to ask you if people want to come to the march, where should they come and when? They should come to the First Parish Unitarian Universalist Church, which is at 425 Congress Street. And it's this Friday at 6 o'clock at at the UU Church, which is um, at the top of Temple Street. Kind of just down from the library at Monument Square. Exactly. One block down. Okay, great. And if if someone wants to call the hotline, what is the phone number? The um, statewide hotline um, is 1-800-871-7741. So anywhere in the state, if you call that, it'll go to the local. Say it one more time. 800-871-7741. And I want to be clear that that you can call that at any point in time. You can call just to ask a question. If you heard this broadcast tonight and had a question about something I said, you could call. Um, you do, it doesn't have to be in crisis. It can be for people call for a whole host of reasons. That sounds great. And then lastly, a book or a resource that's helpful to people who have gone through this. There's a great website, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which is called RAIN, um, has a really great website that's got a lot of referrals and statistics and all sorts of good information. And that's at RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. Or you could go to our website, which is SARSonline.org, S-A-R-S-Online.org. Julia, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you at Safe Space. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and for inspiring the show, and also to Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. If you'd like to contact me to get more information or to suggest a new topic for the show, email me at drannewmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., I'll be hosting Bethany Hayes talking about hormones and women's sexuality. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.